Family movies about pets often show a kid finding a pet that, that used to belong to some mean or corrupt owner and then the previous owner usually wants the pet back to use it to make money somehow or for some other nefarious deeds or just to be mean to it sometimes. And in the climactic moment to ruin all of these movies <laughs> for you, this pet stands between the kid and the old owner deciding which is its true master as they call to it. And these scenes show us how pets know their true master. They know who exercises proper, meaningful, and loving authority. The point for our passage is that Paul drew attention to Christ's authority in connection to his command to flee sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is not just a problem of desires, but is about the master we serve. Sex is ultimately an authority issue. And we need to know who is our master. We previously saw that 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20 pivots around Paul's instruction in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And that, that's a, a summary of and an inference from everything that precedes and encapsulates what Paul said in the verses just after. And Paul based the central premise on, on three different arguments, and each one is richly theological. In, in verses 12 to 14 that we've already considered, Paul rebuked sexual immorality because of Christ's purposes for our bodies. In verses 15 to 17 that we consider tonight, he appealed to Christ's authority to dissuade them from sexual immorality. And then as we'll consider next time in this book in verses 18 to 20, Paul grounded our charge to flee sexual immorality in Christ's ownership of his people. And so we've already seen how verses 12 to 14 show that God made us for specific purposes and sexual immorality is contrary to those purposes. Sexual immorality defies the way that God made us, just like it would be unimaginable to think of cold fire, since fire is supposed to be inclined to heat, so it's toxic to think of humans, especially God's people, full of sexual immorality. Part of the purpose for which God created us was that we would be loyal to Him instead of to wicked masters. One of Paul's points in verse 12 to confront the rationalization of sexual immorality was, but I will not be dominated by anything. Greek pagan culture treated fornication as an indifferent matter, so they brushed it off as irrelevant like Old Testament food laws. The Corinthians thought that this was freedom from the law, but Paul retorted that to continue in sexual immorality is actually to bind yourself in slavery 
to be dominated by it. Staying in the sexually immoral life is like staying with an abusive master after someone has bought you to set you free. And so, we see then, Paul has actually already highlighted the issue of authority in this passage. We can have Christ as our master or we can have sexual immorality. But not both. So, sex is an authority issue. Christians must realize that sexual immorality is not just slipping into sin, but is full-blown treason. The authority issue guides our specific reflection about why Christians must flee sexual immorality. So the main point is that Christ's authority over us means we should flee from sexual immorality. Christ's authority over us means we should flee from sexual immorality. We're going to think about this in three points. Members, marriage, and motivations. First, members. I think it's important to consider why Paul would marshal Three really densely theological arguments to support a really straightforward command. Flee from sexual immorality. And that instruction is not hard to understand, is it? We get that. Regardless of how hard it's been for the church to do. Which is the issue. Because we have always struggled to... Do what is easily understood. Paul hammered three dense theological arguments for a really practical point. We rationalize sexual sin, but Paul crushed every excuse. And so we come to Paul's second argument. This one from authority in verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, Paul filled this letter, we see it four times, even in the verses that I read, this argument, filled this letter with the argumentative question, do you not know that? So it's in verse 9, it's twice in our passage, and it's, it's once more in the later verses. And this question, I think, clearly implied that the Corinthians should already understand what he's about to say. And I think, though, in addition to that, these questions also further explain with more specific insight what Paul previously just stated. So it's not just a rhetorical question. It also pushes ahead the point that he just made. So in this instance, in verse 15, Paul's capstone point about God's purposes for us uh, from the resurrection 
was in what he just said in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And as he will explain at length in chapter 15, Christ's resurrection is inseparably bound to ours. Paul's point was that God raised Christ, ensuring that God will raise us since Christ represents us. So think of it this way. Christ's resurrection is the locomotive of our resurrection. Train cars cannot move by themselves unless something is pulling them. They are not self-propelled. If train cars would go anywhere, they have to be attached to an engine to take them somewhere. But once they are connected to a locomotive, that that leading car, they can't be stopped. The whole train cannot be stopped. How many movies are based on the fact that once a high-speed train is going, there's no stopping it. And Christ's resurrection is the high-speed locomotive for our resurrection. Now that His resurrection has happened, nothing can stop it pulling our bodies from the grave into the new creation as well. And that shows us how there is an inseparable link between Christ's eternal glory and ours, between His resurrection and ours. And that is why Paul asked, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Our bodies are fixed to Christ as train cars to a locomotive. And it is impossible to disconnect the true Christian from the Savior now that the train of resurrection is moving. And so, our bodies are members of Christ. That is why our shorter catechism says... What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, note this, and their bodies being still united to Christ. Our dead bodies still united to Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection. And this point links to the exhortation to flee sexual immorality because now that Christ has guaranteed life to our bodies, we should not catapult them back into death. We are linked to Christ even in our bodies. So just as we would not fill one train car full of toxic sludge on a train carrying life-saving medicine, so too should we not load ourselves with the poison of sexual immorality as we are connected to the train of life. The members of Christ should live as those connected to the source of life. Which brings us to our second point. Marriage. 
So we saw just now how the first step in Paul's argument from Christ's authority was to demonstrate the unbreakable link between our resurrection and Jesus Christ's, which proves that we are members of Christ, even in reference to our bodies. Just like you would not put your own arm into a blender because it's part of you, one of your members, so too you should not put yourself into sexual immorality because you are part of, a member of, Christ. In verse 15, Paul asserted that we cannot join ourselves to prostitutes which was the the most prevalent form of sexual immorality in Corinth due to the pagan temples that included prostitution in their worship. But I don't think that joining with prostitutes exhausts the authority principle here about why we should flee sexual immorality. We can see this from Paul's later arguments in this letter that explicitly connect sexuality in general with the authority issue. So 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 says that husbands and wives have authority over each other's body explicitly within the context of this issue. And in our text, Christ has authority over his people. But if we are sexually immoral, we defy authority to place ourselves under the enslaving authority of sin and of the one with whom we fornicate. So Paul saw a connection between sex and authority in more cases than just prostitution. And in our text, he showed how joining with a prostitute, which can stand in, I think, for most, if not any, acts of sexual immorality, moves someone under the authority of with whom we might be immoral. Verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now again, that rhetorical question assumes that we should already understand uh, and also, again, further specifies how sexual immorality transfers membership from Christ to the prostitute. So he quoted Genesis 2.24, which is about the husband and wife becoming one flesh in marriage by the sexual act, which shows the sexual act to be one of joining in membership. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, again, shows that that membership together entails that marital intimacy comes with the authority over one another's bodies. So physical union creates more than simply just that union, which is why so much is at stake. Christ, however, as God's eternal Son, and, and so we also know that He is creator appointed marital intimacy under his authority 
But he forbid sexual immorality as contrary to his purposes for his creatures, which explains why it is not the physical union itself that is problematic, but the immoral physical union. So, if we think back to the movies about the pet choosing between the good master and the the corrupt master, the good one who has newly adopted the pet and loves it, and the corrupt master who traps the pet for his own devious plans, we find ourselves in the same position between Christ who has bought and saved his people for his glory to restore us to his original purposes and between sexual immorality that seeks to enslave us to endless yet unsatisfying desires. Christians are the bride of Christ, which means we fall entirely under Christ's authority as those joined to him. If we pursue sexual immorality, it is like abandoning a good father to join a family with an abusive father. If we pursue sexual immorality, it is like being given an officer's rank in an army that fights for justice and cares for its people, but then pledging allegiance to the most oppressive general of the most wicked army. It's an authority transfer. And we should see that sexual immorality is treason. Our marriage to Christ places us in his authority without right to act otherwise. Which brings us to our third point, motivation. So we've thought about how Christians are members of Christ, how he is our representative and and how we are joined to him as train cars joined to a locomotive as he forges the way towards our resurrection. And then we examined how the church is the bride of Christ and sexual immorality is treason against our husband who has all right of authority over us. Sexual immorality is an attempt to remove ourselves from his authority and submit to an enslaving master. So the first two points looked at the issue of authority from the perspective of what it prohibits but now I want to think about how this helps us and, and drives us to pursue sexual purity. So we're after how the gospel equips and motivates us in this issue. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Christ could just insist He could just insist on his strictest rights to motivate you towards obedience. But instead of doing just that, he has made his people of the same spirit with him. The same spirit whom Christ earned as the reward for his obedience, Acts 2.33, and the same spirit who justified Christ in his resurrection, First Timothy 3.16 and verse 11 of chapter 6 here, Christ has poured out that same Spirit that is so intimately His 
so that we might be fully joined with him by the communion of the indwelling spirit. The most precious thing that exists is the Godhead. There's nothing surpassable about God. Nothing more valuable. No person of such worth. And each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are most precious to each other. The Son is the cherished, only begotten from the Father, and the Spirit is the bond of love between Father and Son. And this point is so important because it shows us that Christ has poured the very bond of love between Him and His Father into the hearts of His people so that we are caught up into the actual divine love of the Godhead. The depth of this love poured out for and into us explodes, overwhelms, overtakes, overflows, and decimates any false claims of acceptance and pleasure that Satan could ever offer us in sexual immorality. We can find ourselves in the triune God's own life of love. So if you are not a Christian, then do you see that all your lusts that are never satisfied are an enslaving master bent on abusing and ruining you? Would you not see that Christ offers you a place in his community where there is freedom? If you would take hold of Christ by faith, then he would free you from every curse that sexual immorality would bring upon you. If you are a Christian, I really do hope that you see that Paul's entire argument here is premised on the fact that Christ has made you his and filled you with his spirit. If it's, if it's not obvious, I sense the need to be really clear that the Corinthians were people who used to be plagued by rampant sexual immorality. And if we think about that in, in this passage, we see that Paul was actually not so worried about what they used to do? Christ had freed them from that and made them His. No matter what you've done in the past, here, if you've plunged yourself into the depths of sexual immorality or if you have lathered in any other heinous sin. 
Christ would have you and forgive you. Whereas lust will never set you free, Christ died to reclaim you and stands now in heaven to plead your case. And so, we strive for purity, not because the whip is at our backs, but because we rest in the Savior's arms where there is freedom from sin's chains. Christ has united us to him and and filled us with his Spirit so that we would be his. And so... Let us not run back to a cruel master who would ruin us. Let us walk in purity because Christ lived, died, and rose to have us and to cleanse us. Let's pray. Father God, we see in this passage how we are bound to Christ by his resurrection and how, by faith, we join his locomotive of resurrection, that we are bound for the resurrection, destined for it, that you have every purpose of renewing, restoring our bodies, and so it matters what we do with them, and Christ cares about how we would use them primarily because, or at least from these verses primarily, it shows who our authority, who we recognize to be our master. God, give us insight into the way that every other master would destroy us. How every other master would enslave and ruin us, would abuse and misuse us. But you have given Christ that we could belong to him. The good and loving master. Who could have punished endlessly his rebellious servants. But instead he came and paid the ransom to buy back what was already his. What better master could there be? And so whether our sin is sexual immorality or our struggle is any other temptation, God, help us to see that no other master is beautiful, but Christ is glorious. Help us to flee to him, knowing he will set us free from anything we've done, from anything that might tempt us away from him. We do pray these things. In the wonderful name of Jesus, amen.